Um, we have been doing a series called Bread Life recently, um, sort of going through some key aspects of what church does, but with the central tenet being we don't believe that church is a thing that's about the leadership here. We believe this is, church is a thing that's something we all do together. Everyone is equipped to be a part of it. Everybody has gifts, and the church benefits, and you benefit when we work out what that looks like. So we've been looking at prayer, we've looked at worship, we've looked at evangelism. And this morning, we're looking at social justice. And I need to be honest with you that as I have prepared this talk, I have felt a little bit weighed down by what I have perceived your expectations about this to be. I'm a very empathetic person, and um, that has huge positives. Um, if you know me, it means I tend to sense quite well what you're feeling. You don't need to explain it to me. I can imagine, I can predict, I can navigate certain things quite well. A very big negative for me is I can often get this very wrong in how I carry things. And I have. I have, spent, I have felt low about this talk. I have felt worried about this talk. I have um, projected onto you a sense that you are going to see me uh, as British, you know. <laughs> Land of the welfare state, OG. Hip replacements, rhinoplasty, dentistry, emergency C-sections, whatever you need. Completely free for everyone. Completely free for everyone. You have to get on quite a long waiting list, which is a bit of a problem if you need an emergency C-section, granted. And actually, none of it's working that well at the minute in Britain, as well as everything else in Britain at the minute. Leave that aside. And if you know anything about my politics, I have perceived that you might think, oh, here she goes. Some more pseudo-liberal feminist claptrap. It's Che Guevara Jesus coming for us this morning. <laughs> I am probably more left-wing than you actually think, but that is not the point. Where I want to start this morning is just getting us to um, recognize what we think and feel when I say, Let's talk about social justice. Because it's not about what I'm projecting onto you. What we really need to do is all be honest with ourselves about what we feel about this, about what we've experienced of this, about perhaps how jaded we might feel about hearing about this in church, maybe even a bit despondent, sick of feeling preached at about it. And I'm sure for a lot of us, a general sense of, look, I am just struggling to keep my own head above the water. I cannot deal with the needs of anyone else. And I think that's really understandable, and I don't want to negate that for anyone. But I do want you to know that I had a very, very powerful experience of hearing the words that were shared this morning in the prayer meeting. Because, as far as I'm aware, nobody knew what I was speaking about, but those words were about how it doesn't look like you think it's going to look like in God's house. They were about being open-handed, and you can listen out for that phrase, it's coming up. And uh, they were about it not being as uncomfortable as we think. And I was like, oh, good. We'll just do this then. I'm not going to about, worry about how few jokes I have in this talk, which I've been really stressed about, guys. <laughs> and I think we need to start where we always need to start, um, with acknowledging the guilt that we might naturally feel as... I'm going to just generalize, but some of the most privileged, globally speaking, about how we might not feel that we're doing enough. And let's acknowledge that by starting and ending and every, everything else in the middling with grace. 
Because as Ed said last week, guilt doesn't help. It does, I mean, it can motivate. It doesn't really motivate, though, not powerfully, not towards freedom. Guilt, by its very nature, is destructive. Grace is what Jesus motivates us with. And that's the antithesis of guilt. Unconditional love. And receiving this grace is what changes us, is what motivates us. Um, let's see, let me zoom through some stuff. Part of the issue, obviously, is that we don't agree with what social justice is as a starting baseline. Because everyone thinks they're on the side of justice, right? Nobody thinks like, oh, no, no, not me. I, I like the unfair thing. I'm on that team. I believe in corruption. We all think our ideology is about fighting the good fight. But generally construed to be very basic, a concern for what's right and fair for the whole of society, social justice has become synonymous with an extremely specific party-loyal economic policy or various policies. And so I need to be clear from the outset that the social justice in the Bible has nothing to do with party politics. I'm going to say that again, nothing to do with party politics. And I am not preaching any sort of political agenda today. I'm going to try my very hardest ethnocentrically as I possibly can be. We are only interested in a discussion of what Jesus tells us to be as socially just. And as we're going to see, this message of care for the poor, the oppressed, the widows, the sick, the hungry, the prisoners, the immigrant, this has been the heartbeat of God's instruction to his people since he first gave any instruction. It is unavoidable, inarguable, and very, very clear. It is not red or blue, left or right. It is another thing completely. So I'm going to begin with a thing that Jesus says in John chapter 12 that's often misunderstood in the Western church today. <clears throat> we've actually looked at this passage already um, a couple of times in the last probably 18 months, but we've never really gone into this verse. Judas, who is known to Jesus, who knows things to be a thief and a liar and a hypocrite, Judas is objecting to the ludicrous generosity um, of Mary when she pours out this oil to anoint Jesus. It's like a year's salary. It's crazy. He essentially says to Jesus, why has she done this when she could have given all that money to the poor? You keep talking about the poor and she could have given that away. So verse 7. Leave her alone, Jesus replies. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. You will always have the poor among you. It seems like such a bizarre side comment to this powerfully prophetic act of generosity. And it has definitely been um, pretty misconstrued, certainly in my experience in church. What Jesus is categorically not saying is, look, Judas, the need is limitless. The poor are everywhere. We can only do what we can do. Sometimes we've got to be generous in other ways which I think I have heard extended to, we actually need to be careful with how we help the poor because they really need to learn how to help themselves. Not remotely. Jesus is referring Judas with piercing clarity to a well-known passage in Deuteronomy. Let's have a quick look at it, 15, 7 to 11. 
If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against the poor, your poor brother, but you shall open your hand and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. For the poor you will always have with you in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. <clears throat> open your hand wide, Judas. But in pole opposition to the act of sacrifice and devotion that Mary has just performed, Judas is stealing and taking, taking advantage of knowing Judas at all. Care for the downtrodden, as I said, did not begin with Jesus. There is absolutely no uh, cultural context or historically specific instruction here. It had been crystal clear from the get-go. And it's the commandment here in Deuteronomy. And it was radical. No other culture or religion in the ancient world thought this way. All gods and belief systems identified with the person at the top. They're at the top because God has chosen them and put them there. But God says to this man-dominated power system, I'm the God of the widow, the weak agenda, the bottom of the pile, and to this fiercely tribal in and out, us and them worldview, he says, I am the God of the immigrant. Leviticus 24.32 says, you are to have the same law for foreigners as for the native born. It's radical. It's utterly audacious. It's epoch-defying. And obviously, it didn't play out in Israel. This is from Isaiah 58, so written about 700 years after the law is getting, given. I'm going to zoom through it. Declare to my people their rebellion, for day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. I'm going to skip to verse 6. Is this, sorry, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. These people were faithfully religious. They live by the law, they identify by the law. And yet God says, declare to them their rebellion. They along with, I think it's fair to say, great ways of God's people before them and after them, had forgotten the very heartbeat of what it is to be God's people. To loosen the chains of injustice, to set the oppressed free, to feed the hungry, to give shelter to the poor wanderer. At the start of Luke 4, Jesus has not yet begun his public ministry. He's been baptised and he's um, gone into the wilderness to be um, tempted by the devil at the start of this chapter. So it all starts from here. Verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. On the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. 
the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is what he launches with. His whole ministry. This is his manifesto. Good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, sight to the blind, freedom for the oppressed, the year of the Lord's favour, which is a reference to the cancellation of debt. We need to know a little bit more about synagogue custom need to, in order to understand quite how um, startling what Jesus then says is, quite how dramatic it is, because the synagogue service took a set format. So they'd start with reciting from the Torah, then they'd recite some prayers, and they recite again from the Torah. Um, and then it would be a time for a reading from the prophet. So he's handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he, and he turns to um, what we call Isaiah 61, a passage that promises the coming of God's salvation. Now, normally, it would be that the person who read this out would stay standing and read a sermon and perform a sermon on it. But Jesus' sermon is very, very brief. He does not use many words at all. He simply declares, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And it's a very, very clear announcement. Good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. It's the good news that everyone has been waiting for, sort of. Because he isn't saying, I'm going to give Israel back your king, put him on the throne in Jerusalem, I'm going to charge you into a military victory, I'm going to put the God of the Jews back in power, and I'm going to lead you all to govern everyone by my rule, by my law. Jesus didn't go to the ruling elite. Oh, imagine the impact of the rich and powerful followed me. Have you ever heard that in church in this time? Jesus began his ministry with a reiteration of the plan, a reiteration of what God has always done, identifying with those at the bottom. And he's doing this as he's coming to earth to do exactly that, not as a deviation from the plan, as a perfect enactment of the plan, a true Israelite showing humanity what his kingdom looks like. Jesus wasn't here just to announce a message of salvation to the world. We miss a huge part of what God's plan is when we reduce Jesus simply to a personal savior. His unwavering message and action the whole time he's on earth. I mean, it starts right at the start when he's a king born among animals. He wanders around virtually homeless, stripped of his last possession. He experiences gross injustice at his trial and execution. This king knows what it's like to be the lowest of the low because he chose to put himself there for us. Blessed are the humble, the gentle, the meek. Social justice in the Bible doesn't equal equality. It's way beyond that. It's special treatment, more than equal, special advocacy for those who don't have a voice beyond equality for those the world, the world tramples on, speaking louder for those who can't speak for themselves, put first those who come last. All lives matter, yes, but the things Jesus said are women's lives matter, Samaritan lives matter, children's lives matter, lepers' lives matter. They are political statements then as much as now. To say Jesus is Lord when Caesar is Lord as a matter of Roman law, that's very political. 
to say Jesus is Lord when the Lord's name is too holy to be uttered according to Jewish law? That's very political. To turn over tables, to heal the blind, the lame on the Sabbath, it's very political. To take the side of the underdog over and over again, to call out the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders, they are very, very political things. Social justice as a term may have political connotations, but the idea that this could ever be reduced to a political party or a political candidate, it's not even a drop in the ocean of what we're supposed to be endorsing. This is something else entirely. Milling is the term used by sociologists to describe crowd behavior, particularly with reference to what crowds of people do in the moments after a disaster. It's actually quite amazing. Most of the time, when faced with the most dire circumstances, the vast majority of people become their best, most altruistic selves. You hear, it, you hear about this if you read about natural disasters or mass shootings or terrorist incidents. Those who find themselves able to help don't tend to leave, they don't tend to hide, they don't tend to go home. Most people are compelled to help those who are at need, even if it puts themselves at further risk. I've seen this a few times, maybe you've seen it too. Uh, my office um, was right next to the Edgware Robe Tube Station in the 7-7 bombings. And my colleagues ran towards no idea if there was going to be more bombs or anything, ran towards to see what they could do. It was incredible to watch. In, um, I was also in New York on 9-11. And uh, in the early afternoon, where, I mean, everyone, the whole of, I mean, the world is watching it, but nobody in Lower Manhattan is doing anything else apart from, if they're out of danger, watching their TV, waiting to find out if there's anything we can do. And the news stations announced they need blood, hospitals need blood. By the time we got to the hospital, I don't even, I've never been in crowds that big. Everybody's there going, please take from me and give it to someone that needs it. Most people do whatever they can, even in the times of the most panic and the most chaos. A few months ago, I was cooking dinner in our old house, and I heard a huge bang outside, and it was one of those noises where it, uh, I mean, it, it could have been something really bad. And... Um, by the time I got outside, it cannot have been more than about seven seconds. Um, there was a, about 25 people, I'm going to say, from, a, from houses and apartments around us had, had all run outside. And we got there to, um, in time to watch the driver of a car who had just fortunately hit a stationary vehicle at quite some speed, and he looked like he had some minor injuries, reverse and pull away in a very damaged car. But it was, I found it really, really moving. I mean, fortunately, nobody else was hurt, but just how many people had sprinted towards it. I do believe that. I believe most of us have this instinct to run towards it, to use whatever we have at our disposal to help anyone we can. And it, it's right in line with what we believe we are theologically, created as image bearers of God with his DNA. And it's marred, obviously, with our brokenness, collectively, individually, historically. But I do think the vast majority of this generation passionately believes that change is possible. We just don't know how.
because our culture tells us we're isolated, our culture tells us we're stuck, our culture tells us there's nothing we can do. All this corruption, all this inequality, all this injustice. I mean, look around this town, look around this country. Children, brutalized, trafficked, men, women and children without home, everywhere we look. The education system, the care system, the justice system, the immigration system. How can we even begin to know where to start? I'm sure a lot of you know of a man named Brian Stevenson. He's a lawyer and the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. And he's dedicated his career to challenging injustices. Excessive and unfair sentencing, abuse of the incarcerated and the mentally ill, children prosecuted as adults. And he's won reversals, relief and release from prison for over 135 wrongly condemned prisoners on death row. And he's had seen hundreds of wrongly convicted or unfairly sentenced um, people released or um, had their sentence reduced. He's on the front lines of the battle for equality, for racial equality in America. And he's made extraordinary personal sacrifices for her work, for his work. His care for the individual, even the guilty, is so resemblant of Jesus. He sees the worst of human nature, both in the people he defends and in, at the hands of those charged with bringing equal justice, many of whom still deny to this day that racism plays any of a part in it. And yet he does it with such grace. He is such a beautiful and compelling communicator. And his battle cry to anyone not caught in the grip of racial injustice and inequality in America is it's on us. It's on us to repair the damage wrought by slavery by a Supreme Court that in 1857 ratified into law that Africans were only three-fifths human. And it's never been apologized for and the ramifications of it are still not being addressed properly. And I realize I'm on extremely thin ice because I'm not an American, but perhaps it'll help if I um, point out that it was to the British colony of Virginia where the slave trade all began with the arrival of 20 and odd enslaved Africans 400 years ago, almost precisely. And I'm sure you know the statistic that one in three black men born in this country are expected to go to prison. The number of women in incarceration has risen 650% in the last 25 years. And you know, money and power play their part in this as it always does. If you do nothing else as a result of this talk, please go and watch um, Brian Stevenson, or the new documentary about Brian Stevenson called True Justice, or his TED Talk, which is also mind-blowing. I'm really sorry if this is making you uncomfortable, but we are called as followers of Jesus to rally against apathy, which I think is what a lot of us feel stuck in. And it means being informed, and it means being in discussion. The thing is with Brian Stevenson, it's the grace and mercy and the forgiveness that just beam from his eyes. I mean, I'm sure he like, doesn't recycle or picks his nose and eats it or something. I'm sure he can't be perfect, but he's unbelievable. His big message to most of us is the power of proximity, is the power of believing that we all have things we can reach out and touch, and it's on us to do it. That we have to get close that we have to do what we can with the situations that are in our reach, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our conversations. 
and taking this beyond specifically race. This is where we're all called to start. I don't think we are all called to be world-changing, culture-changing, you know, world-shifters. It's improbable anyway that every single one of us. But we are called to do what we can. And we are called to work together, to take out packs of water and socks, to bend down and just stop and say to someone, I see you, child of God. And it just starts with this very basic posture of here I am, use me. I'm nearly done. I've just got one more person to tell you about. She's another hero of mine called Beatrice Webb. Born in 1858, she was the seventh of eight daughters of a merchant. She had no formal education, but she became one of the most influential social reformers in British history. She championed the poor and their rights when they pretty much had none after starting her career um, of social work in the slums of London. Long before these attitudes were acceptable, certainly not in the, the voice of a frail and ill-equipped lady. She's now credited with being a crucial architect of the welfare state, despite not actually living to see it, and was a massive influence on the fabric of Brit British politics in the interwar period, as well as founding London School of Economics which is a highly regarded university to this day. Towards the end of her life, she made a very striking comment. She said, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature, but all these years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts of man. How little you can count on changing some of these. For instance, the appeal of wealth and power by any change in the social machinery. No amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb the bad impulse. Beatrice was an Anglican, but she couldn't cope with many of the attitudes of the Victorian church, and she left that behind, and she went on to explore Eastern spirituality and various other things in search of something that was satisfying. By all accounts, she never really found it. But this is where my hope explodes, and it's gutting that Beatrice didn't find her hope in church, because it's what church is supposed to be here for to be the people who know there is another way. And again, I don't mean in the machinery of politics necessarily. I mean in the hope that there is so much more to appeal to us than wealth and power. We have love, we have grace, we have redemption, we have the world-changing power of forgiveness. We have a belief that every single human life is valuable, infinitely valuable. And we have the truth that we are all created equal in his eyes. There is no hierarchy. Real power can be found in submission to these truths. Real freedom is found in giving ourselves away. Mutuals make absolutely no sense. But we are called, every single one of us, to bring this hope into the world around us. To live it, to breathe it, to believe in grace and its power even when the world punches us in the face with messages to the contrary. And so I do want to say, while we're still in our fledgling life as a church, that we're absolutely not going to settle for this. We passionately want you all to be able to come here on a Sunday and know how loved you are. We passionately want that to be a brilliant and life-giving experience. 
we really, really care about the movers and shakers of Los Feliz, and we want the Alpha course to reach people with this message. But we have a lot of hope, a lot of faith in what we believe God has spoken to us about, about the future of this community, about our ideas, innovative and transformative and disruptive ideas about how we can bring change. Social enterprises, NGOs, businesses, different methodologies, schools, hospitals, shelters, daycares, co-ops, shared workspaces, whatever you can think of. We powerfully believe that the culture of the kingdom can and will impact systems of injustices that we see around us. The very good news to all of this is not just that I'm finished now, but is that this is the Spirit's work, not ours. It's in Him and Him alone that people find this freedom, the freedom that empowers us, the freedom that changes us, the, the freedom that allows us to not be defeated, that we don't need to strive, we don't need to compare, we don't need to fear being taken advantage of. Such a huge one in this. All of that's been defeated at the cross and now we stand on the other side with this hope, with this new message that I believe is so unfamiliar to most people who think they know what Christians are about.